Nothing draws us in like a good story. For millennia, humanity has come together to hear them told. Stories help us remember our past, understand our present, and anticipate our future. During this season, we remember the story of God unfolded throughout history in stories of both good and evil, wisdom and foolishness, triumph and defeat. Stories that whisper the name of a conquering king, a final victor, the faithful and true author himself. So, gather around, settle in. Let's listen once more to the stories that fill us with hope, joy, peace, and love. This is the story that changes everything. Happy Advent, everyone. I'm making it a thing, y'all. All right. Before we get into the message this evening, uh, I wanted to let you guys know about an opportunity that is extended to all of you next Sunday, which is Christmas Eve. Uh, every year we have a tradition of, uh, of do, collecting an offering to go to a, a local or global partner that is a specific area of need in a specific moment. And uh, I'm really excited about, uh, I'm excited every year about which one we are uh, participating this year. Uh, But this year in particular, um, it's an exciting opportunity. Uh, There is a church that many of you know that uh, me and Nick Cramsey got the opportunity to visit in uh, right outside of Paris and Valderup, which is uh, the area that encompasses Disneyland Paris uh, earlier on in the year. And they have a specific need and opportunity that we all have an opportunity to participate in. So we have a quick video from uh, their pastor there, uh, Peter Judkins, and he's going to share a little bit about their story. Val d'Europe is a new town east of Paris built around the Disneyland Paris resort. It's a thriving, dynamic town, constantly growing. The church, l'Église du Val d'Europe, was planted in 2016 from a neighboring town as there was no gospel witness in the area. We are a multi-ethnic, cross-generational congregation seeking to be a community transformed by the gospel on mission to share this gospel with people who do not yet know Christ. We meet weekly as a church to praise God publicly and to be equipped through the preaching of his words to live out the gospel in our daily lives whether at work, in our families, and neighborhoods. We also meet throughout the week in small groups in people's homes. And these are times for deepening relationships, but also we want these to be bases to reach out to our neighbors. Ce qui m'encourage particulièrement au groupe OCM, c'est de voir comment l'évangile se vit dans la vie de chacun et dont la façon elle transforme le cœur de mes frères et sœurs de semaine en semaine. Je suis également encouragé de voir comment chacun témoigne de la bonne nouvelle de Jésus-Christ au sein du Val d'Europe, que ce soit auprès des voisins, de, des collègues, des amis et de leur famille. We want to proclaim God's goodness to the next generation through our kids and youth work. And this enables us to reach out to the families in Val d'Europe. At Val d'Europe Church, as you know, we are passionate about God's word and how it reaches everyone, including the smaller ones in our congregation. 
We have about 30 children who come regularly every Sunday um, and during the sermon they will go out to their respective age classes and receive some teaching and have lots of fun uh, learning about God's Word. Although France has historically been Christianized, today the vast majority of French people have never read even a portion of the Bible or have any real interaction with a Bible-believing Christian. And so we want to be a visible presence in the community so that people have the opportunity to come to hear the gospel both on Sundays and throughout the week. Living in a town centered around Disneyland, we are seeking to reach the many workers who come from all over the world. We are grateful for the partnership with others to help us think through how best to do this and what are the particular challenges of Disney culture. The world is on our doorstep and needs to hear about Jesus, and so we want to extend Christ's love to them and point them to him. There are so many exciting things happening. Every week we have people visiting, wanting to find out about God and the gospel, people turning to Christ and joining the church. Praise God. Euh, sans, sans réellement avoir de foi, comme beaucoup de gens qui se disent chrétiens sans l'être vraiment. Euh, et petit à petit, j'ai fait mes propres recherches et, euh, et ça m'a amené petit à petit à Dieu. J'ai grandi dans une famille athée et euh, dans une culture aussi qui l'est beaucoup. Bah, en lisant le, la Bible, en posant des questions, de nombreuses questions à la communauté de l'Église, euh, j'ai découvert en fait la, la beauté de la parole et la beauté du, du sacrifice de Jésus, le plan de Dieu aussi pour le monde. Et, euh, et c'est là que j'ai réalisé qu'en fait je m'étais trompée, que finalement Dieu il existait bien même quand moi j'avais pas conscience qu'il était là et qu'il avait œuvré toute ma vie euh, sans que je me rende compte. However, the big challenge for us is the church building. We currently rent this this place and would like to buy it. 60% of our budget is currently spent on the rent. Yeah, if we were able to buy the building, we could reduce our monthly outgoings, use that money to provide a salary for the pastor, and so be sustainable in the long term. We would also be able to adapt this building to our needs so that we would bless the community and be a visible presence in this town. This money would also fund training for future gospel workers for France. We are passionate about sending and receiving men and women in ministry training so that we can plant more churches in this area and beyond so that more people can hear about Jesus. We prayerfully dream of a network of churches planted in this area, sharing resources and experiences, shining as lights for the gospel in the Val d'Europe, equipping and sending out men and women daily to live for Christ where he is least known. Will you partner with us so that people in the Val d'Europe would hear the gospel and be saved? And so that's the opportunity that we get the opportunity to participate in on Christmas Eve. And so I know for many of us, we're going to be out of town and doing other things on Christmas Eve. We will be opening up uh, the giving link on Christmas Eve through our normal uh, this is mosaic.org uh, slash give, and you can just scroll down on the drop down and you can click Christmas Eve offering Disney Campus on there. And uh, every every dollar that comes in into that special offering goes straight to uh, their work and, uh, and their dream and hope and in, uh, in seeing God provide them a permanent space for them to meet 
Um, the other part that he didn't mention in this particular video is that uh, Disney controls the permitting rights um, for the Valderope area, and uh, it's currently a 15-year permitting process um, if you want to build a new building. Um, and yeah, so um, that that's harder than here, uh, and it's really hard here too. Uh, and so um, this would be a great opportunity for us to step in. Um, and so uh, we'll have a physical giving box next Sunday that'll be here. We'll talk about it at Christmas Eve uh, and as well as the online version as well. So all that is available to you. And we want to just simply share the need, share the vision, and see what God might be able to provide as we as a community collect as a whole. To move back to the message now, uh, one of my favorite Christmas traditions is a bunch of mediocre animated films, okay? Uh, it's the Rankin and Bass movies. Now, some of you might love those, and, 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 and do not boo me, please. Uh, but uh, I, I watch them every year. I promise I do, because I grew up watching them every year. I don't know that I ever loved them or really even liked them, um, but I watch them because that's tradition and that's the way it works. Uh, and specifically the one that I was thinking about uh, when I was, I was preparing this message was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Okay. Uh, you, you probably know the story. You probably have heard the song. And it tells a story of an unlikely champion of Christmas, right? Uh, a reindeer who has a, uh, has a glowing skin condition. And, uh, and, and because of that, he doesn't get to go to PE anymore. And that ends up leading him to a self-imposed exile uh, that takes him to an island of misfit toys, where there is a griffin, a lion, uh, half lion slash half eagle slash Aslan character who protects and creates a safe haven for toys which suffer from a wide variety of maladies. And so in the song that the, the misfit toys begin to sing, they proclaim many things that are, uh, th that are their conditions that they uh, suffer from. And so here are a few of them. Nope, other one. There it is. Okay. So, so you have the Charlie in the box because a misnaming issue is a big enough deal to be misfit. Uh, you have a water pistol that you jelly. Feels like my son probably played with that or something and it's just filled with jelly now. Uh, but the train has a real issue. Those are square reels on his caboose. That's apparently a, a big deal. Um, uh, you have uh, a doll named Sue who says, uh, how do you do? I'm assuming that that means that like that's the only thing she says, but also don't toys often just say one thing. But anyway, that's misfit as well. And then of course you have this blue teddy bear with feathers and that uh, that's also makes him misfit. But then you have, let's go back to the other one now. You have this guy. What is that thing? He doesn't sing. He doesn't move. He is in multiple shots and he's just there. This steely eyed, unmoving, uncaring pig toy. Did you ever see that before in that movie? No, it's there. Now you can't unsee it. Oh. Okay, change it. Put, put it back up. I don't, want him, I don't want him looking at me. Okay. So that was me going off on a pig trail. But now I want you to think back to a time in your life where you kind of felt like you were a resident of that island. Where then you felt 
uh, dismissed, unlikely, like a misfit. Humans are, off, are quick to categorize and dismiss one another. From our days in elementary school, we learn that there is an in and there is an out. And we have to reconcile that fact, whether we find ourselves in the in or on the out. It's hard when you feel like a misfit toy, when it feels like others don't understand you, and so then they, they write you off. It's easy, though, for us to do the same to one another, right? We experience personality differences, idiosyncrasies, or any number of issues, and we actively uh, avoid one another. And so it makes sense that that is our way of understanding and viewing the world in and out. And so then when we think about God, it's pretty easy for us to project that image on God, that that is how he thinks, it's how he operates, that there's an in and an out, where he picks those who are most likely, like he plays favorites, like he avoids the quirky in favor of the ideal. He picks the beautiful, the super godly, the intelligent, the wealthy to receive his blessings or to even be used by him. So I mention all that as we move into our passage tonight. We've been journeying in our Advent series uh, this month called The Arrival, and we've been moving through the family tree of Jesus, sitting in stories of some of his ancient ancestors. We have been tracking how God has continued to reveal himself to be faithful and true, even in the darkest moments of humanity's history. Last week, we talked about how God is faithful and true, even in the midst of human weakness and obscurity. And so now we've talked about a few different characters and they were all imperfect. They were all weak in times. But if we were the ancient Jewish audience receiving, receiving these stories, we would have still understood that these characters in some sense were still the likely ones. Noah and Abraham, for example, we talked about last week, were both weak in, moment, in moments for sure, but they were still like these, these wise, sage people that you looked up to from the past. These were leaders of their families and their descendants, and they uh, demonstrated a great deal of faithfulness, even though they also degree, displayed a great degree, degree of faithlessness. And so we can look at those characters, and we would say, yeah, they probably would get invited to play in reindeer games rather than going into obscurity on the island misfit toys, right? And so it makes sense for us to think that for sure, God does use weak, flawed, sinful people, but maybe he like grades on a curve. Maybe, yes, he uses sinful people because we're all sinful, but out of the sinful people, he's still looking for the best and the brightest the most talented, the most charismatic, the most desirable characters for his stories. And so we're going to journey beginning from Abraham tonight and discover, does God use the likely or is there a space for the unlikely? So we left off last week with Abraham and Abraham would go on to have a son named Isaac and Isaac would have two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, Jacob would later be renamed Israel, uh, and it would be through Israel that he would have 12 sons. And these 12 sons would go on to produce the 12 tribes of Israel as they had kids and their kids had kids and their kids had kids. And after many generations, they became their own people group. 
preparing to enter into a land of promise given to them by God. And so God instructs the leader of the nation of Israel at this point of entering into the promised land, a guy named Joshua, which we, we're going to be starting in Joshua chapter 2. And he instructs Joshua to conquer a walled city named Jericho. Now, Jericho was well known for these, uh, these, these walls that had great infrastructure to them that were impenetrable. And so it'd be in this city that God would use, perhaps from the vantage point of the ancient audience, one of the most unlikely characters in the Bible in some remarkable ways, both then and into the future. And so we pick up in Joshua chapter two, starting in verse one. And so Joshua, the son of Nun, uh, son of Nun, N-U-N, not N-O-N-E, just clarifying, he, he, he was descended from people. So he sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, two men, they did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Because the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, and this is the, where this gets very interesting. I know that the Lord, Yahweh, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. So what she is saying is, I know that your God, like the place where I live and all the places around where I live, I realize that all this is actually going to be your guys's. And Everyone's afraid of that. They're melting in reality of that. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two king of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What, what, a, what a proclamation, right? I realize that the God I worship isn't the real God. That your God, in this age, you would have a tribalistic version of deities. That your people worship your gods and other people worship their gods. And when you went to war against one another, it was a testing between your God and their God to see who was stronger. And what she's saying is, we haven't even fought a battle yet and your God wins. Super aware of that reality. Now, now then, please swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. 
And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. In other words, you're not going anywhere. Like I've got you, you're protected. If, if you died, we would die. Like we're in this with you now. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. What an unlikely story. And the spies would go on to tell Rahab that the way that they're going to do a marker is to tie a scarlet ribbon around the door, which is going to signify to the Israelite soldiers to protect this household from any harm. And this promise would be honored in Joshua chapter six, uh, when after God collapses the giant wall, the giant fortification surrounding the city and the troops begin to move in. Before the troops move in though, the first move is to go find Rahab and her household and lead them to protection. Soon after, it explains that Rahab and her family moved to be a part of the Israelite community. Now, this story is fascinating and unlikely in so many ways. Now, in ancient literature, this story highlights three realities that would have been bizarre moving into the land of scandalous. First, it elevates a Gentile, a non-Jew. Again, this is a very tribalistic world. And in this context, what you would do is you would tell stories of your heroes from your people group and how your people group were so far superior to other people groups. That's kind of the thing. It's what gives you tribal pride. And here is the first story of how the Israelites go into their land of promise. And the first thing that God provides is in a, in a sense, a hero, but the hero, it's not an Israelite. It's a Gentile. And so it's odd one that that happened, but it's even odder that it would be recorded. Like change the name, fix, figure it out, like change something about it to make it where the Israelites are actually the winners here. So that is odd. It's unlikely. The second one, as you could possibly guess, is that in this ancient culture, it's elevating a woman. That would be odd. Women were rarely, if ever, heroes in the stories that are recorded and that lived on. And so for the Spirit of God to use this woman and for the Spirit of God to lead this story to be recorded in the scriptures, that's unlikely. And then finally, and perhaps the most obvious, it goes into a place of moral unlikeliness. She was a prostitute. She made her living in a way that is against God's desires, in a way that everyone would look at and go, oh, not likely to be used, like disqualified probably. And see, as far as the people of Israel have been concerned, this woman, Rahab, is at the very bottom of the social hierarchy. Think train with square wheels on the caboose, right? In the ancient imagination, there is no good reason that God would use a person like this in his story. And yet, She's not only mentioned here as a significant character that God uses to help the Israelites defeat their enemy, but thousands of years later, her name is going to resurface in the biblical narrative when one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, 
would write down at the beginning of his scroll, at the beginning of his gospel account, a genealogy of Jesus and write these words, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. The unblemished, sinless king of the Jews, Jesus was descended from a foreign woman who had previously lived in prostitution. That's unlikely. And yet, the scriptures aren't hiding that story in its pages. It's not like, this is like a dirty little secret one that we try to like not really bring up. No, Matthew ensures that it's actually a part of it. Now, Matthew records Salmon and Rahab have a son named Boaz. Now we find his story in the scroll of Ruth. So if you want to go ahead and flip your Bibles to Ruth chapter one. Now, scroll of Ruth records a story, but the main character isn't Boaz. It's two women, Naomi and Ruth. Now there was a great famine that struck the land of Judah. And this is in the decades after the entrance into the land of promise. And yet in the land of promise, there's a famine. And Naomi's family ends up fleeing, the, fleeing this land. Uh, her family is her, her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons. And so they leave the land of promise to find security and stability in a foreign land by uh, crossing over the Jordan River into a, into a country called Moab. Now, soon after arriving in this land, where apparently food was more plentiful, the unimaginable happens and Elimelech dies. So this now leaves Naomi and her two sons living alone in a foreign land. Not ideal. Now soon, each of, their son, each of the sons would marry a Moabite woman. And after 10 years of doing life as a family unit, uh, both like a Jewish Moabite hybrid family unit, both sons die. So tragedy again hits double hard this time. And now Naomi is left with no husband, no sons. And she is now the caretaker of two daughters in law. Now, it's vital that we understand that this was not just a moment of deep grief. Although you could imagine it's for sure that. In the ancient world, women were rarely given the opportunity to provide for themselves financially. So instead, instead they had important roles, uh, caring for the household, the farm, uh, and the family. And the husband were, and sons were responsible to provide for the family financially and with provisions. Now, this system one could call quote unquote workable as long as you have a husband. And if your husband dies, as long as you have sons. But now Naomi has neither. Naomi, the widow, has two other widows to take care of. So they are extremely vulnerable and they are facing a very, very difficult decision. What next? See, Naomi had heard that the famine in, was over back in Judah. So she lets her daughters-in-law off the hook, says, you can leave without any obligation. And so one of her daughter-in-laws, Orpah, takes the opportunity and returns to her family of origin. But Ruth, well, she does the unlikely. 
in Ruth chapter one, verse 15. And she said, this is uh, what Naomi was saying. See, your sister-in-law had gone back to her people and who were her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, okay, I guess this is happening. And so this language that Ruth is using is all in commitment language. Like we talked about last week about covenant language. This is covenant language. I am going to walk through life with you. I'm not abandoning your side. Don't make me go. But even bigger, she says, your God will be my God. See, up till now, she would have been worshiping the Moabite gods. And she's saying no more. I'm in, not just with you, but with the God that you look to. And I'm making this covenant, not just with you, but with him. And together, they journey back to Naomi's hometown, a little, a little farming village called Bethlehem. Now with the hope that some of Naomi's extended families perhaps could help provide for them. Now eventually an extended relative of Naomi, a man named Boaz, you know, the son of Rahab, he would say to one of his young men who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers, meaning uh, the, the farmers who cut all of, uh, all of the, the stock in the field, He says, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now imagine you're Boaz. You grew up with the story of your mom, a foreign woman who boldly steps out in faith toward the God of a people that she didn't even belong to. And so Boaz shows great compassionate mercy and justice for Ruth and Naomi, ensuring that they are provided for and cared for. And the story continues, and it's far more fascinating than we have time to get into. But all of this culminates in the ultimate act of secure and compassionate love when he marries Ruth, ensuring that not only her and Naomi be provided for for life, not only would he and Ruth have an opportunity to live in the covenant of marriage together, but that he became an active participant in the incredible redemptive story of God on display, crafting beauty from ashes. Isn't that wild? And why do these two stories matter so much? Well, when Matthew would recount the family story of Jesus. He would mention that Ruth and Boaz would go on to have a child named Obed. And Obed would be the father of Jesse. And then Jesse would be the father of a few sons, but specifically the most unlikely of sons, the smallest, the run of the litter, a shepherd who would be anointed with oil and would become the king of the Jews, David. 
See, God loves to destroy our previous conception of what is likely. In the ancient world, Rahab and Ruth were unlikely to be mentioned even as a footnote in a religious text in any other culture. But not only are they mentioned, but they're actually honored. Not only are they honored by being written into the pages of scripture, but God would use these two unlikely characters to eventually lead us not only to the great king of Israel's history, David, but to the true king of Israel that David was merely a signpost toward, King Jesus. The idea of God utilizing the unlikely to demonstrate that he is faithful and true. It's not some one-off novelty concept. It's not something where God's like, you know, I'm used to using the best and the brightest. I'm just gonna give it a try every once in a while and just show how cool I am still. See, this would actually go on to be a defining characteristic of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus would call to himself 12 disciples. Were they the best or were they sometimes the worst? Yes, sometimes the worst. Absolutely. I, he called to himself a backstabber, uh, uneducated fisherman, uh, one political revolutionary, some doubters, and one very unlikely misfit, a tax collector named Matthew. And Matthew, Matthew, the unlikely, Matthew, the misfit, would sit down to pin a gospel account by the inspiration of the spirit of God. And he would write down this genealogy and he would include multiple times the names of women in the genealogy. Now that's unique to the Christian Bible. That is unique to the Hebrew scriptures. That didn't happen in the ancient world. It was typically just lineage after lineage of the men who, were, who would sire the next and the next and the next. But here we have something so unique and it's, and it's more than just about equality of the sexes. It is that God is operating through the beauty of humanity. That he is faithful and true, not by what we might see as the obvious choice. He is up to something far more beautiful. And by mentioning these women and by extension mentioning their stories, he is giving an important vision of his heart, of his character. That he uses water pistols that shoot jelly. That he uses a doll named Sue that says, how do you do? That he uses that creepy pig thing. Can we bring that up one more time really quick? That's creepy. But I think that's me as a toy. So let's back off of that now. Like he uses even that pig thing. Like he uses woefully inadequate people. He uses the unlikely, the written off, the discarded. And see, this is so important that we would understand about who God is. Because when we think that there is someone who is more likely than someone else to be saved by Jesus, then that is rooted in our own arrogance. When we believe that this person would be more or less likely, that is rooted in a humanistic vision. Instead, if you are here tonight and you know Jesus, that is because the God of the universe pursued you. Not because you earned it, but because he 
loves deeply. And if you're here tonight and you do not know or follow Jesus, I think it is no coincidence that you are in this space, that you would discover in biblical community the insane love of God for you. And that if you are a follower of Jesus and you go to your home or your neighborhood or your work location or back home to your family uh, as you travel for the holiday, and you would think, man, I don't know. I don't know about that wacky uncle or about that cousin or about that spouse or about that kid. I don't know. I believe it is no coincidence that God puts the people in our stories and the stories of those who know and love him. And we can't treat it as a coincidence. We have to treat every moment as a missional opportunity to demonstrate love for God and love for people. See, God's not a respecter of men. We look at the outside and God is, is evaluating what's in the heart. He doesn't see the people the way we do. He doesn't cave into the sin of partiality where we view some people as worth our time and others worth writing off. The gospel begins with the good news that none of us are worthy. None of us were likely. And yet we are no more worthy of God's love than the worst dictator to live on planet earth in the history of humanity. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive and united together with Jesus, the Messiah. So going back to that family member that you're seeing for Christmas, that you couldn't imagine them ever coming to know Jesus, Take heart, because if he can save you, then he can save them. For those of us who think, oh, I just don't know. That's what it looks like, though, to surrender our, our faith to the one who is faithful and true. Because our hope is not rooted in, will I say the right thing? It's in God. Would you invite me to participate in the story that you are already writing? And then for those of us who feel unlikely or dismissed, rejected and discarded, for those of us who still feel like we're chilling out on the island of Mystic Toy sometimes, God delights in entering into stories just like ours, breathing new life into them. See, God's love is for you, whether you feel seen and you feel known by others or not. And it's not because you earned it. It's not because you were extra special. It's because you absolutely couldn't earn it. And so we, that's where we live. Not only planet death, but we could also call it the island of misfit toys, right? That we are all misfits. And yet that's exactly who God desires to use. Those who simply go, put me in. Let me see you. I want to, I want to do this with you. And so tonight the greatest reminder that we can have in our hearts is to be reminded that there is a God who is faithful and true and that he says that we are loved and we are his and that we can have a firm foundation of hope that's not rooted in something that is as finicky as your best or worst moments, but that is wholly satisfied in him. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. And right now what we're going to do is we are going to, as we'll be doing 
last couple weeks in this Advent series is we were gonna take some time to prepare him room. Prepare him room in our hearts and in our minds. I confess that this week, I'm, that is literally my screen save or my background on my iPad and on my iPhone. It just says prepare him room because I need that reminder. And yet I was so quick to just go straight past the lock screen. And I mean that both literally and metaphorically. Like I was so quick to just kind of go, keep going on the busyness and frenetic pace of my life. And I confess, I did not prepare room for him well in my heart and in my mind this week. And maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you're like, man, this Christmas season is flying by and I am so stressed. I can't wait for December 26th, Boxing Day, whatever that is. I'm stoked for not Christmas. So my life can start slowing back down. But then we would miss the opportunity to meditate on arrival, to prepare him room in our hearts and minds. And so I'm going to invite John to come on up. And John is going to light our Advent candles for this evening. And tonight we move on to hope. And what we're going to do is we're going to do, as we did last week, a call and response, which means I'm going to work, read from this beautiful book called Words for Winter, an Advent reading. And I'm going to read a verse, and then you are going to respond uh, with the collective. And all those words are going to be on the screen. So the first, the paragraphs will be what I will read, and then you'll respond together. Church. May we embrace in the season of Advent the Prince of Peace, Jesus. Would you just take a few deep breaths, meditating on the fact that he is the Prince of Peace. Jesus, our hope and security, entering from glory, wrapped in flesh and manger seen. You came gentle and lowly to be cloaked again in majesty. In meekness, in humility, you came to us, Emmanuel. Take a few deep breaths. John, can you light the next two? Jesus, our rescue from the gentle, haunting pulse of anxiety, from quick relief and false remedy. You lift our eyes beyond well-worn traditions and frivolity to see you wholly treasured in renewed clarity. You quiet our often turbulent internal discourse. You restore our souls. Jesus, our preserver, dignifier, and origin of justice, dismantling hostility, severing the veil of enmity. You have granted us to be family. Jesus, our 
brother, sister, father, mother, son, and daughter. Let's proclaim this together. Longed for king and welcomed babe, you are our comfort. You are our unity. You are our hope. Jesus, our peace. Father, we make much of you tonight because you sent us the greatest gift of peace that the world could ever know in Jesus. I love how this uh, song says, the infinite infant God. That before you were a child, you were always existing, Jesus. And yet you stepped into our frame so that we could know you so that we could set our hope fully in you, that while we live in the now and not, and not fully in the not yet, that we can discover your kingdom come, your will be done in our hearts and in our minds as we prepare you room, in our biblical community as we prepare you room, in our families, in our apartments, with our roommates and our friends as we prepare you room in our workplaces as we prepare your room. Lord, would you help us to have our eyes and our hope fully centered on you. King Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in Jesus' powerful and mighty name we pray. Amen.